welcome to Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our third season of Rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. This year we are launching our series on the rhetoric of X where X equals a subject, a profession, a field, or discourse community. Today's topic is the rhetoric of X, where X equals movie reviews. Now let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Et ideo ego adoluscentelos existimo in scolis stultissimos fieri, quia nihil ex his, quien usu habemus, aut audiunt, aut vident. Now, in our last episode, we asked listeners to email us their suggestions at rhetoric.fun at gmail.com. And you can still do that. We're still taking submissions. Uh, And today's topic comes from Eric in Norway. Hi, Eric. Uh, And he wants to know about movie reviews. So, Tim, tell us about the rhetoric of movie reviews. Okay. Movie reviews are a form of film criticism, specifically the kind that appears in newspapers and other mass media, informing the public about a new movie advising them to see it or skip it. You know, Tim, I get that uh, movie reviews are a form of popular film criticism, but uh, aren't there other formats? There is. There's academic film criticism, which instead of just praising or panning a new release, evaluates films on a more theoretical level, arguing for a picture's significance in the history of film or its contribution to the art form. You know, one example of this that I really like is uh, of this type of film criticism uh, explores something called the uh, the Frankenstein myth. You ever heard of this one? I, I, I have indeed, so do tell us about it, Dave. Okay, uh, basically the idea is in, in popular culture and uh, movies, obviously, what we're talking about, there is an increased division of technology and humanity, and that leads to an end of humanity. Uh, and the idea, is it comes from Frankenstein, right? Uh, so Dr. Frankenstein created this monster, he creates it, it goes out on a murderous rampage of sorts, and that's where we get it. And some of the most prominent examples you see of this are in movies like Blade Runner, uh, Terminator, uh, Rocky IV, which is my favorite example, right? Rocky trains in nature, right? He runs in the woods, he boxes hunks of meat in a meat locker or some sort of way. I don't know why. Uh, but he does all that, and he fights Ivan Drago, the Russian. And this was in the, uh, the, the 80s, right? Uh, yeah, and Ivan Dra- Ivan Drago, the Russian, you know, he was trained by all the latest technology, the medicine, the science, and all this stuff. Uh, and you know, uh, Ivan says, you know, I will break you. Uh, but it turns out, the plucky spirit of the American in nature kind of overcomes that triumph. Uh, but I guess as a popular culture practice, uh, getting back to the idea of movie reviews, uh, it sounds to me like a series uh, or a species of epideictic rhetoric, uh, which season one listeners might recall. Uh, is a genre that deals with the uh, rhetoric of praise or blame. Good call, Dave. And the fact that movie reviews regularly evaluate new releases means that they share another aspect of epideictic rhetoric that is being focused right here, right now. Mm. So uh, who can be a movie reviewer, Tim? Anybody can be a movie reviewer. But if you want to get paid for your efforts, you may need some credentials. I'd guess a degree in film studies or something like that from maybe a prestigious university might be... uh required or helpful no right you guessed half wrong dave for a couple Hmm. of reasons (laughs) first off there were not any film studies programs when people started reviewing movies and secondly 
if you're reviewing for the mass media, you don't need all that fancy film theory. Sounds like that idea in your Latin phrase at the top of the episode is appropriate here. Indeed. But you weren't far off on the prestigious university bit. Several notable reviewers have degrees from places like Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Chicago, and UC Berkeley. Okay, give us some names, right? Uh, names of these reviewers. All right, we've got James Agee, Andrew Saris, Judith Christ, Pauline Kale, Vincent Canby, Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel, Peter Travers, and the two current reviewers for the New York Times are A.O. Scott and Manola Dargis. Uh, well, Tim, based on, their, uh, based on their education and their degrees, it looks like a uh, who's who of East Coast elites passing judgment on what has been mostly a West Coast industry. Good call. It turns out that Pauline Kale was a Calgrade grad who started reviewing films in San Francisco before moving to The New Yorker, where she spent more than 20 years battling the editor William Sean, who was forever trying to tame her colloquial style. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure she appreciated a man telling her how to write her own thoughts. Your, your sarcasm is on point, Dave. Good, good. So uh, what goes into a movie review exactly? The main ingredient is the evaluation. But the reviewer also needs to tell the audience what kind of movie it is, explain the premise, tell who made it, who's in it, discuss formal elements, for example, setting and costumes and musical scores, etc. And one particular feature that is somewhat unique to reviews of narrative art forms. And what is that, Tim? The reviewer will often need to avoid, or at least alert the audience, to any spoilers. Yeah, it makes sense, but well, can you explain that? Well... The reviewer wants to entice the audience to see good films, but not ruin the experience by revealing the ending. So that's, I guess that would be especially relevant for thrillers or movies that are kind of somewhat suspense, uh, suspenseful, right? Uh, I would think, uh, you know, like a movie like The Crying Game. Siskel and Ebert's review of that movie is one of the more well-known, well-done reviews uh, that I've ever seen. They give a solid review of the movie without revealing the kind of key turning point, the key kind of uh, event that happens in that movie. Uh, but it was a really good movie. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but what about a bad movie? Isn't it okay? I think it would be okay to spoil the ending of a bad movie. Even then, spoilers should be avoided because the reviewer functions in cooperation with the people who make the films, the newspapers, and other media outlets that advertise them. Spoilers, even of films the reviewer thinks no one should see, mess with the business model. I guess that's... Uh, I guess it's true what they say, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, you got that, Dave. Yeah, so uh, my nautical points are on point. <laughs> so, Tim, uh, what's the typical arrangement, right? We're talking rhetoric here. What's the typical arrangement of one of these movie reviews? In ways that are similar to the classical oration or inverted pyramid journalism, the reviewer must first get and then attempt to keep the audience's attention after taking care of some essential business, such as identifying the category of film and making some connection to current or past events or film. Lay, uh, give us an example there, Tim. Sure. The Terminator is a science fiction film directed by James Cameron and starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator, a cyborg assassin sent back from the future to kill Sarah Connor, played by Linda Hamilton, whose son will one day become a savior against machines in a post-apocalyptic future. Nice example. Um, so you covered category, the premise, dropped some big names on us. What's next? Next, the reviewer should indicate whether the film is good, bad, or indifferent before going into more detailed analysis and justification for each of several value claims. So just to make sure I understand. So the reviewer first makes a definitional argument 
followed by one or more value arguments. I would think they'd make a few. Um, well, remind us the relationship between those two. Sure. A definitional argument asserts that an X is a Y because it possesses certain defining criteria. Okay, so like uh, I think a good example is Groundhog Day, right? So saying Groundhog Day is a romantic comedy because it deals with love in a light and humorous way. Exactly. Ah, now, uh, for, uh, refresh us up on that tasty, what was it, value arguments. That's what we're on. A value argument is simply a definitional argument with a value term added. So mm. X is a good, bad Y because it possesses certain generally accepted criteria. So Groundhog Day is an excellent romantic comedy uh, because we would get to see Bill Murray's character change from a, a misanthropic uh, cad into a sweetheart of a man through the transformative power of love as he falls for, uh, uh, what was it, Andy McDowell's character. Dave, you're a sentimental fool. Uh, I've heard, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that, <laughs> I'd have a nickel from you right now. So, uh, Tell me more about the criteria that a film critic uses. The criteria include the usual ingredients common to various forms of literature or performance, such as plot, character, setting, acting, pacing, plus some technical features like sound, cinematography, special effects, musical score, plus big items like entertainment value, as well as any message the film may have and its suitability for certain audiences. So if the reviewer has to make a separate value argument for each, uh, each criterion, they couldn't fit them all in. So how, do these, how long are these things? Length depends upon the medium. The ones that appear in a daily newspaper usually go 500 to 750 words. The ones that appear in weekly, such as the New Yorker, can easily run to five times that length, while the reviews on TV, such as those of Siskel and Ebert, usually lasted from three to five minutes and regularly include clips from the film in lieu of descriptions of key plot points. And I think that would apply to YouTube as well, right? Absolutely. Right. So these value claims, um, uh, what, or I should say, which of these value claims does the reviewer actually defend and how might they accomplish that? That depends upon the review and the film. Some reviewers pay special attention to the performances of the main characters, situating them in the context of earlier performances. For example, a reviewer might say, the usually steady Gene Hackman convincingly handles the tough guy scenes, but looks quite stiff in the pivotal romantic moment. Conversely, a reviewer might simply describe an uneven score as jangly, where it should have been calming, and lacking, emotional, lacking emotion elsewhere. You know, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that one, Tim... <laughs> I could buy your house, right? Uh, but all that sounds pretty subjective. What you know? Uh, uh, what, I, maybe people feel differently than the reviewer. Well, indeed. But if the reviewer writes well and provides some reason to support the stronger claims, be they positive or negative, the audience is likely to feel that they have enough to go on as they weigh their movie viewing options. That makes sense. Um, any other? What are the other common features of these things? Okay. Um, because the films are frequently based upon a pre-existing play or book, the reviewer might note the ways in which the movie differed from its source material and possibly opine on how well or poorly the screenwriter and or director had adapted the original. Seems even more subjective, Tim. Indeed. But it still may serve as a useful purpose, possibly warning viewers who loved a certain novel away from a bad adaptation or inviting viewers unfamiliar with an esoteric literary work to give the picture a shot. All right, so let's go back to that category question that we uh, that you brought up uh, earlier. So what are some of the categories they, they, they review? 
The usual categories include these, action-adventure, animated, comedy, crime-mystery-suspense, documentary, drama, horror, musical, science fiction, Western, and foreign films. You know, I don't know if those uh, uh, are mutually exclusive, but based on that list, I'm going to go ahead and guess there's no such thing as a foreign (laughs) documentary film. Well, you raise a good point, and it has a lot to do with sort of American hegemony and uh, sort of its place in the production of films. But indeed, you can find documentaries in every language. And are there any foreign Western films? Um, Good question. You should have asked Sergio Leone, but it's too late now. He was father of the Spaghetti Western. A more recent question is this. Is the Western dead? The answer to why there was such a genre has a lot to do with American myth-making, which is a bit too large to take on here. Perhaps the rhetoric of myths is a good topic for a future episode. I agree, but you know, Tim, the uh, the same academic film critics who discuss the Frankenstein myth that I, well, we started with earlier uh, say the Western myth, uh, Western is not dead. It's just somewhat recontextualized. Um, and so while the wild, quote-unquote Wild West might be gone, the same kind of story is present, but it's out in space, the exploring the great beyond. Uh, to them, the Westerns aren't dead. They're just, a, the West is just a new, unexplored world, space. Far out, Dave. Indeed. <laughs> All right, you ready for some challenges? I am. Uh, based on our examples, uh, have we seen any movie that's been out in the last 25 years? <laughs> oh, let's see. Um, I have. I've only recently started watching more movies thanks to the pandemic. And actually what I did was I bought the New York Times movie reviewer uh, critics book, uh, The Thousand Films You Should See. Mm-hmm. And so I'm taking turns with my wife picking films. So, so we've seen some stuff as recent as like, well, let's see, one of them was The French Connection. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's, that was not out within the last 20 years. But yes, we have, seen, we have seen some recent films. We didn't use them as examples. Okay, so here's my real question. Can you give me an argument, or I should say, which is better, to, to read a movie review or watch a movie review before the film or after the film? Which do you think is better? I think if it was a, a really good film, some maybe important film, film I wanted to see, I would like to see it without having read the review first because I'm, uh, I would like to be uninfluenced by that opinion. That said, if it's like Friday night and there's 20 different films playing within a five-mile radius of me, and I want to pick one, I would want to have some idea of what I was getting into. And ideally, maybe it would just be a short review that gave me just the highlights and not an in-depth review like you would find, say, in a five-page review in The New Yorker. But I got a challenge for you, Dave. So we were basically talking about mass media media reviews, and we kind of posed them in uh, comparison to uh, university uh, intellectual reviews in uh, peer-reviewed journals. What about now the plethora of places like uh, Yelp and Rotten Tomatoes that allow people mm-hmm. to just throw in five stars or thumbs up or the ones that you find uh, in, in uh, uh, Amazon.com? So do those things fit with everything we've said previously about the rhetoric of movie reviews or are they so different in kind that they don't even belong in the same discussion? I would say they're definitely movie reviews are they to the extent of what I would call, I think we, what we presented here is a quote-unquote classic kind of uh, traditional genre of movie reviews. Uh, and perhaps even my comment about the, uh, the nature of our examples, right? They're all really old movies. Um, perhaps there's new ways in new media that we're not accounting for in that discussion that are somewhat fundamentally different. 
I, that's a good answer. And, and basically, one of the things that it relates to this idea that our professional reviewers were somehow vetted. They're good writers. Mm -hmm. They're good thinkers. Seen a lot of movies. Now, if somebody gets, just goes on Yelp and gives it five stars or gives it one star. Now, in some cases, they do provide evidence to support their award. Some cases, they don't. But then what the aggregators do is say, was this a useful review? Mm -hmm. So now, ones that were not useful to viewers kind of don't go to the top of the list. Mm -hmm. The ones people found useful at the top of the list. So it's almost like having that credential of, I write for the New York Times. I write for the New Yorker. Yeah, so they are connected. And having said, I remember seeing an interview with uh, Gene Siskel, who was talking about, you know, somebody asked him how great it is to be a movie reviewer. And he goes, yeah, but I see movies all like every day of the week, sometimes multiple times, and I have to write about every single one. It's a bit of a task. Um, but then I think about seeing these movie reviews, for example, when the new Star Wars movies came out, you know, I was excited to see how the story ended. And I found some of the best reviews were from people who only watch Star Wars movies on YouTube because they, had the, they didn't have the degrees or anything, but they had the depth of knowledge to kind of give yeah. me a, a good review. So, again, they, that's a good point. Knowledge, knowledge will help a rhetor. Mm, that's true. <laughs> All right. We good? We're good. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Oh, goody, a rhetorical device. Yay! In an interview with Conan O'Brien, Bobcat Goldthwait revealed that Morton Scorsese had defended Goldthwait's film Shakes the Clown from detractors. When a film critic derided the movie in order to make a point about good and bad movies, Scorsese revealed, I like Shakes the Clown. Haven't you heard? It's the Citizen Kane of alcoholic clown movies. The film critic was Betsy Sherman, whose 1991 review in the Boston Globe famously referred to the film as the Citizen Kane of alcoholic clown movies. So, leaving aside whether or not Sherman was joking, what we have here is a rhetorical figure that's somewhere between a metaphor and an analogy, the latter interpretation counting on the audience to provide the D term in an A is to B as C is to D proportion. Shakes the Clown is to alcoholic clown movies what Citizen Kane is to an unnamed D term, something which any knowledgeable film buff would know is the category greatest films of all time. So in effect, Sherman had created a new rhetorical figure, which is a cross between an analogy and an enthymeme, which I hereby name an analymeme. All right, Tim, who's sponsoring this episode? For over a century, IQ tests have been used to rank and sort candidates based upon a numerical intelligence score. Baked into this construct is the notion that stupidity is nothing more than the absence of intelligence, much like cold being regarded as an absence of heat. However, the latest research has demonstrated that stupidity is not merely the absence of intelligence, but is an entity unto itself. Therefore, we have developed the SQ, or stupidity quotient, test of, te of idiotic tendencies. Like the IQ and SQ tests will produce one number, with 100 being said as the average amount of stupidity found throughout much of the population. But based upon a nationally normed set of questions about politics, religion, economics, popular culture, conspiracy theories, and sports, the SQ test can identify any individual's potential to think dumb thoughts and do stupid things. And unlike the IQ exam, which branded low scorers with such hurtful labels as idiots, imbeciles, and morons, the SQ exam takes a different approach identifying those who score highly as slightly, somewhat, or colossally stupid. 
So instead of ranking people merely in terms of intelligence, consider using our innovative, patented SQ exam to identify and reliably score the actual presence of genuine, irredeemable stupidity among your applicants. Find us at www.sq.edu, the stupidity quotient exam to identify the truly stupid in our midst. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library. And don't forget, if you have any suggestions for season three or any other questions, you can email us at rhetoric.fun at gmail.com.